Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. I taught at the state attorney's office at 10-16-78. I left there 4-30-82. Um, the reason I just plain quit, I couldn't deal with it. This was at the height of the uh, activities that I find personally repulsive. In, in a lot of wrongful conviction cases, the, the, you know, the, the cause essentially is, is a bunch of well-intentioned people who made a mistake. Right? That is the typical wrong, wrongful conviction case. That's not this case. This case, you know, again, I think it's tempting to think, of the, to, to think about this case about the fraudulent dog handler, but, but in a sense, that's not really what this case is about either. This case is about a criminal conspiracy that exists in Brevard County. With respect to Norm Wolfinger having been, at first, an assistant state attorney with me in the mid-70s, and then being the chief assistant public defender in my office for four years before being elected state attorney and going to that side, and being familiar with Juan Ramos's case, and being familiar with jailhouse snitches, and being familiar with the dog, I was somewhat surprised at Mr. Wolfinger's position and tenacity in which he fought these cases in the future. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to season two of Murder on the Space Coast, where we're exploring how three men were found guilty in Brevard County in the 1980s for crimes they did not commit, and how prosecutors used a playbook of sorts to win these convictions, relying on an expert witness who claimed, falsely, that his dogs could link the guilty to the crime scene, and on jailhouse snitches. Those same methods were used to convict a fourth man, Gary Bennett, whose story we told you in season one and who remains in prison. A word of warning, some of the language is a bit salty and the themes might not be appropriate for younger or sensitive listeners. Gary, if you remember, has been in prison for 33 years for the 1983 murder of Helen Nardi. Gary's partial palm print was found on a closet in Helen's Palm Bay trailer, but he told police he had been in his neighbor's home before. A few obvious suspects, including Helen's lover, who was also her son-in-law, were ignored, and the focus went right to Gary. When there wasn't enough evidence to convict him, state prosecutor Dean Moxley produced fraudulent dog handler John Preston. Some 100 days after the murder, Preston said his dog identified Gary's scent on the murder weapon. When that wasn't enough, the state then produced two jailhouse informants who claimed that Gary confessed to them in the county jail, yelling, I've killed once and I'll kill again. We've heard during these first few episodes how prosecutor Dean Moxley used that same strategy of using fraudulent dog handler John Preston and jailhouse informants to send an innocent Wilton Dedge to prison for 22 years before the Port St. John man was exonerated by DNA. Unfortunately for Gary Bennett, there was no DNA left in his case to test. Now we're going to take a look at the sad case of Juan Ramos, who became the target of a murder investigation roughly one month before Wilton Dedge was first convicted of rape. But before we do, 
I just want to share a pretty funny story that Wilton Dedge told me. You were called for jury duty recently, <laughs> right? Right. What, what, what happened there? Uh, honestly, I think I'd be one of the best jurors. I swear I would. Because if you're guilty, I'd, I'd send you. But if you're not and they're playing, then no. But the only judge that needed jurors was Dean Moxley. That was the only judge that needed jurors. And once I told them who I was and why and whatnot, they couldn't get me out fast enough. Wow. They didn't even want me to come back the next day. <laughs> How ironic is that, that you would be called for jury duty for yeah. Dean Moxley's? I wonder, I mean... I, I, was, I was looking forward to seeing him because I've never been able to really see him eye to eye since I've been out. I mean, it'd been nice if he'd come apologize, but I never got that from him. Or Wayne, I, I've gotten, I've never got an apology for any of them. Somebody told me that one of them felt bad, but I haven't, you know, nobody's come to me. Back to Juan Ramos, now a Miami-based truck driver who I've tried to reach unsuccessfully for this podcast. Luckily, Brevard County's public defender for more than 30 years, J.R. Russo, represented Juan, and he agreed to sit down and share the story. I'll set it up. So Juan Ramos came to the U.S. from Cuba during the 1980 Mariel Boatlift. I'll get more into his past a little bit later. But he found love, married and moved with his wife, Danette, from Miami to Coco in Brevard County in August 1981. He found the job working for a local factory called Armor Flight, though there were occasional layoffs when work slowed down. He had escaped Castro's Cuba and was working on his own version of the American dream. In January 1982, Ramos and his wife made friends with neighbors Mark and Sue Cobb. Sue was a beautiful blonde who would often sunbathe in her backyard. Ramos and his co-workers would sometimes watch her with a pair of toy binoculars from the nearby factory where they worked. Ramos and his wife would buy Amway products from Sue Cobb, and the two couples developed a friendship. All that changed on the morning of Friday, April 23, 1982, though the morning started out like any other for Mark and Sue Cobb. They got up around 6 o'clock. They had a routine of where she would read the Bible and get ready and so forth. And then she took Mark to work. And uh, I believe he called her from work at home about 7.40 in the morning. Um, he wanted to remind her that when she picked him up for lunch to bring a checkbook for various reasons that we don't know. I guess they needed to buy, buy something or he needed to pay something. So he called at 7.40 in the morning and he reminded her of that. Um, he said that when he left home that day that the answering machine was on. So um, Juan Ramos um, that day was to report to work at Armor Flight at around 7 o'clock in the morning, um, at which point he, he did. Um, there was dispute as to whether people say they saw him there or they didn't see him or he could have been there and they missed him. But at any rate, he says he got up at 7 o'clock that morning to go to work at Armor Flight. He checked in. He was told that he was laid off. So he went back home um, and, get, and went back to sleep with his wife, Danette, um, who had a cold at the time. And he said they just stayed in bed till mid-afternoon when he woke up. And he had a meeting back at Armor Flight at 3.30, where I guess they were going to bring all the people in that had been laid off and explain the situation, which he attended at 3.30. In the meantime, uh, Mark Cobb was calling. Uh, his wife never came to pick him up from, for, for lunch. 
and he began calling, began calling home several times and, and got no answer, at which point he talked to Mike Tabling and Mike gave him a ride over to his home. Mike Tabling was Mark Cobb's boss and friend. And at this point, I'm sure you can guess what happened next. Uh, Mark went inside, uh, walked to the back bedroom, immediately saw what the situation was, and came running out to tell Mike. Mike went in and took a look, and they immediately went over to Armor Flight to call the police. He didn't call from the house because it was a crime scene. She was clearly dead. He did not want to disturb anything. She was dead. <clears throat> she was dead. The police came, and, and um, it was Cocoa Police Department. It was a, um, this house was, was a low-end house. Um, it was in a bad section of town. It was uh, one street, one block south of Peachtree Street in Cocoa. It was uh, very close to the railroad tracks. Um, and it was, like I said, it was an industrial, not a good part of town. And, and um, anyway, uh, they call the police, the police arrive, and Sue Cobb is in the back bedroom uh, on the floor with 17, well, disrobed, naked, um, with her blouse kind of taken uh, from the back so that her hands were, were caught in the blouse. Um, there was a white uh, macro-made kind of wedding gift rope thing that they had had on the wall that they had found underneath her that, that might and apparently had been used maybe to strangle her uh, or that there was unclear whether she was unconscious or conscious but there were uh, markings on her neck that indicated that she could have been strangled. As I said there were 17 stab wounds to the right side of her chest area and to her, uh, excuse me, the left side and to the left side of her neck. Um, and then there was also a very large butcher knife um, that was found in her chest area that was left. There were signs of um, sexual intercourse. If you haven't listened to season one of Murder on the Space Coast yet, and if that's the case, then shame on you, but season one looks at the murder of Helen Nardi, as I mentioned earlier. I bring her up again because Sue Cobb's murder sounds awfully familiar. Helen was also found naked, stabbed 26 times, and a pair of scissors jammed in her chest. In Gary's case, the police focused on the partial palm print found in her trailer, and then the state built its case around that. Juan Ramos? Well, the only thing that police could point at as possible evidence was that semen swabs that were taken from the body showed that the person who had sex with Sue Cobb had type O blood. Juan Ramos is type O, so was Mark Cobb, and so was about 40% of the population. Pubic hairs not belonging to Sue Cobb were found on the scene as well, and they were blonde. Not a match for Juan Ramos at all. There was an entry in Sue Cobb's Amway receipt book that Juan Ramos had stopped by on Wednesday night to pay her for some cleaning supplies. Mark Cobb also told police that their home had been burglarized several months earlier and that Ramos told them they should get a dog. That was it. Juan Ramos's American dream was shattering. We talked during season one, and we touched on it here in season two, how the police in the state would pick the low-hanging fruit. Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, Juan Ramos, and Gary Bennett were easy targets. They were out of work, unsavory, bikers, or potheads, whatever. Here's Dillon. 
That's what they did to us. They took young kids that were easy to do, we were easy to throw away, and they just took and they throw us away. And now society won't, won't try to correct the problem. And no one proved to be an easier target to pin something on than Juan Ramos, something that even his lawyer, J.R. Russo, agreed with. And he's a Cuban Marielito. Um, and if you remember back at the time, the Cuban refugees were, you know, these were bad people. Uh, for the most part, they, that Castro had emptied out his jails of all the violent criminals and they had come to the United States. And, um, and here's... Al Pacino and Scarface. And there you go. Yeah. And so there you got... Um, so then you got the Coco PD saying, well, we have a, a Marielito Cuban refugee who lives down the street that has an association here, that talked about the house possibly being burglarized, that uh, has a, an alibi that's only backed up by his wife, saying you know, he was laid off for the day. And so anyway, they bring him in for questioning. Yes, it's true that Castro emptied his prisons, asylums, etc., and sent the dregs of Cuba to the U.S. But according to research Russo and his team did, Ramos didn't really fit into any of those categories. So this is supposedly the story. Juan Ramos was in the Cuban military and was working in a field when he witnessed a boy being raped by three or four other men. So he went over there with a sick to stop it. And while he was doing that, somebody grabbed him from behind and he took the stick and swung it and it happened to be a Cuban soldier uh, uh, higher up. Officer and here. because of that, he served some time in the Cuban prisons or was going to. His mother told him that one way to get out of that was to act crazy. Mm. And so he cut three of his fingers off to avoid going to Cuban prison. I oh, don't know wow. okay. how much time he served or if he served any time, but he did have missing fingers. And, and the story was that he did that to either get out of prison, I was unclear, or to avoid going to prison. So now when the Cuban uh, boat lift arrives, he's, a, he's an undesirable um, he, he claimed that he was a homosexual, and I don't remember, his mother and brother came over with him, and that's how they got out of Cuba, and that was the story that we had from Juan as he left, and, and why he might have served time in a Cuban prison. Um, the other thing you need to remember when you're dealing with um, Juan all through this case was his cultural background, um, his newness to the United States, and his... I thought, remarkable ability to pick up English as fast as he did, but it was still very, very broken English and very, very difficult to communicate with him, sure. even as lawyers. Okay, so a lot there to digest. Cuban military, prison, chopping off his own fingers to escape a madman's regime, to wind up in Brevard County during a time when justice seemed to take a backseat to closing out murder cases. So because of a receipt in an Amway book... And the fact that Juan has typo blood, the police interrogate him for seven hours. And wouldn't you know it, during that interview, someone takes Juan's empty and crumpled pack of cigarettes and stores it for, yep, you guessed it, John Preston. It was time to bring the lying fraud of a dog handler in. So on April 30th, John Preston and his dog Harass do a scent lineup. This is almost as comical as the ones he did in Gary Bennett's case and Wilton Dedge's case. There were five blouses. Four of them belonged to the wife of the police chief of the Cocoa Police Department. The fifth? Well, that one was Sue Cobbs. Naturally, it was the only one covered in blood. The dog supposedly takes the scent from the discarded pack of cigarettes and then goes right to the bloody shirt. 
If you're wondering why no one ever tried to do a real scent lineup with several bloody items, well, at least one person did. Try, I mean. Former prosecutor Sam Bardwell. He was prosecuting a rape case and had a confession. There was pressure from his bosses to use the dog, even in cases like this when he had a confession. So Sam agreed and decided to put Preston and his dog to a real test. I became aware of his bizarre notion of what a lineup was. I thought it was a highly flawed experimental design and that those who helped him generate these lineups had to either be you know, basically intellectually bankrupt when it came to experiments and controls and uh, it caused me a little concern about their intellectual honesty or where they were just cupidity, you know. Some believed it, others said this is bullshit, and then there was some of those who even went further. So I told him that I was going to do the lineup. I didn't tell him what the case was. I merely got a hold of the investigator and I said, bring that nightgown. So the state attorney's office was on the fourth floor, and part of the fourth floor was the law library. The law library had an expanse where you could do a lineup and videotape it. We had, you know, the rudiments of videotape in those days. We had these beta Macs. So I, you know, made sure that they had the video at one o'clock. I show up at one o'clock and then there's nothing happening. And so I'm told by the investigator, we've already done it. And I thought, uh, you know, I thought there was an understanding that I was going to, uh, you know, design the, the lineup. And, but he would always chirp, hey, the dog just doesn't, he's just too unsophisticated to lie. And I thought, well, that might be something that a jury might understand. Because what I was going to do is do a nightgown. I was going to get a firearm. We had some at the state attorney's office. Wallet, you know, that I, I was going to get a, a lineup, a variety, of, a variety of things, and he, he was not to know the nature of the offense, mm. nor anything. But what they did, and they, these, these are sheriff's deputies, they went to the local Belk Lindsay's, and when I saw that lineup, I just said, you know, this is really a they had uh, a series of purple nightgowns that seemed to be the same one, and they were still on the hanger. They still had all the tags, and they were in a line, and all you had to do is pick, you know, the odd one. Who takes the, their nightgown back after being raped, and then with the tag, etc. So I knew at that particular point in time that he was a fraud, a charlatan, and a liar, and that nobody who utilized him to do lineups had any personal integrity or, or rudimentary knowledge of, of basically experimental design. And so I then realized that uh, there's some evil things working here evil things indeed. So back to Juan Ramos. John Preston actually did a second scent lineup in that case, 
where his dog supposedly found Juan's scent on a bloody knife. The other knives? Well, they were clean and all part of a set. The only one that was different, the only one that had blood on it, was the one that Preston's dog picked. But as we know by now, Preston and his dog malarkey were never really enough for the state to nail down convictions when they had no other real evidence. They needed a quote-unquote confession, relayed to them by a jailhouse snitch. In this case, even though Juan barely spoke English, a jailbird went sharping to the state. Here once again is Juan's lawyer, J.R. Russo. In, in situations where the case is weak, um, and then they go to their second, as I call their second string um, bench, which is going to the jail and talking. They, they say they get information from a fellow by the name of James Gilmore, who I believe at the time was facing eight felony counts. Um, and he notifies a guard at some point, um, before I, I think before his plea and sentence, um, that if he had information about the Ramos case, would it do him any good? Gilmore uh, provides um, some information that he claims that Juan told him. Again, whatever Gilmore gets had to be very mixed up and, and unclear from Juan, and, and I don't think there's any doubt about that, as, as incriminating as Gilmore might make it sound. Um, Gilmore, I believe, finally contacted the jail guard um, about trying to uh, get this information to the state that, as he, I'm sure, might thought, help him when he found out that the state was seeking habitual defender penalties against him. So, um, so this is really what you have. You have no connecting evidence, uh, no, no physical evidence connecting Juan to the scene, no eyewitness testimony connecting Juan to the scene. You have a dog which has come under fire um, for, for a lot of different reasons. And then you have a jailhouse snitch that has uh, that's facing eight felonies. The state says they're going to seek habitual felony uh, penalties against them. And lo and behold, when the smoke clears away and the case is over with, James Gilmore, I believe, gets uh, two years probation. So obviously there's a quid pro quo right. reward for his testimony, although the way the state always worked that was they never cut the deal with you ahead of time. And there was nothing, anything in writing, and there was nothing said. But I can guarantee you there was a nod and a wink. That nobody, right. nobody, nobody, had to, no, no, nobody would know the wiser. So Gilmore testifies that Ramos told him he went to Sue Cobb's house after getting laid off to buy Amway products, and Cobb looked really good when she came to the door. Ramos went inside and attacked her. What's interesting is that Gilmore said Ramos used the words, pow, 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 as if he had shot her with a gun. But as we know, that's not how Sue Cobb was killed. There was one more piece of evidence the state presented, though it really makes you wonder exactly how it was obtained. So after Sue Cobb is found murdered, Juan's neighbor, Doris Estes, is interviewed and has nothing to offer. Neither does a man by the name of Paul Hunter, who was working clearing a grove next to the Cobb's house. They are interviewed two more times. On the third interview, a full three weeks after the murder, both say something about suddenly remembering seeing a dark-colored or Cuban-looking man run through the neighborhood that morning. But they can't seem to agree on the time they saw the man. I'm not sure why they would be questioned a third time when they claim to have no information when questioned before. Absolutely. So that is what they had um, in the case. Um, and then the final um, big pieces of evidence for the state um, 
actually the big piece as they would look at it is when the state always was in trouble, and this is obviously a weak case, the fingerprints don't match, the hair doesn't match, um, the blood type is a, is a type that's, that's fairly common amongst the, the population. Um, they have a conflict in their witnesses with respect to what they saw, as they gave it three weeks later. Um, they have their dog, which they go to. So the case goes to trial, and the jury has no trouble buying what the state sells them, and they find Ramos guilty of murder. But here's the interesting thing. They recommended he be sentenced to life in prison, just like Gary Bennett. But the judge, William Woodson, well, he had other ideas. The very first trial was moved to Sanford uh, on a change of venue. Judge Woodson was the, uh, the judge in the case. We filed, obviously, motions to suppress the dog evidence, which he denied. Prosecutors at the time were Dean Moxley, who was quite fond of dealing with not only the dog in many, many cases, but in feeling comfortable with um, jailhouse testimony. And the other prosecutor in the case was Chris White. That was the first time around. The jury deliberated and they came back with a guilty verdict. They deliberated further on a penalty and came back with a recommended life sentence. And Judge Woodson overrode the recommendation of life and sentenced Juan Ramos to death. Really? Wow. I hadn't heard of that before. Okay. I mean, what was his reasoning? Or, or well, he, he, like just saw, he just saw the aggravating circumstances as, as more um, heinous uh, than the jury. And so he overrode the jury recommendation of life and sentenced Juan Ramos to death. That decision by Woodson would actually end up saving Ramos. And if the judge in the Gary Bennett case had done the same thing, instead of going with the jury recommendation for life in prison, that he might be free as well. I'll explain later. Back in the courtroom, Russo witnessed something that makes you feel even sadder for Juan Ramos, if that's possible. This is, it's, I hate to say that it's funny because it's not. It's peculiar. But when, what, when that verdict came in on the facts that he was guilty and a cultural difference from having come from Cuba, Juan was under the impression that perhaps they do things in the United States the way they do in Cuba. And he said goodbye to his wife and he fully expected to be executed almost immediately after that trial. Oh, wow. And so when he was saying goodbye to his wife, he was under the impression that either that night or the next day, he was going to be executed and that was it. And, and so we had to explain to him, no, 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 there's, there's more to this yeah. coming. But, but to give you an idea of the cultural differences right. between Cuba and the United States, he was under the impression it was, it was over, there was no appeals, he was going to be executed. Wow. He kissed his wife goodbye, expecting to face a firing squad right away. Thankfully, that's not how things work here. Find out Juan's fate in the next episode. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. Well, you see, the thing about it is, if you rationalize to yourself, whoever you're prosecuting, whoever they may be, Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, Juan Ramos, Gary Bennett, they're bad people horrible people and so what you do is you have you're, you're on a righteous cause to convict somebody that's guilty it's a horrible person and that allows you to do things like that whoever's going to say this guy's guilty if it'll help your case you put him on i can assure you john you and i could walk to the brevard county jail right now and say who wants to tell me about somebody i'll cut you a deal 
we'll be getting calls before we get back to your office. Sure. Hey, I can tell you about so-and-so. Um, so yeah, that was that was a practice that, like I said, one of the, one of the most respected long-term judges said, stop, knock it off. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, part of the USA Today Network.